BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Here we are, two-plus years after confronting the first waves of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID. The virus has evolved, and so have the countermeasures that people in different parts of the world have been willing to take. The data that we've used to triangulate where we are in the pandemic continues to get squishier, and even among those who've been cautious, there's weariness. So where does that all leave us? We're going to talk about the local, the national, and the global, as we wait to see if there's another Bay Area wave just over the horizon or some other plot twist. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. So far, Despite waves rising and falling in other parts of the world this spring, the Bay Area has not seen a return of soaring case rates and hospitalizations. Is it vaccinations, prior infections, dumb luck? After so many others, another wave feels inevitable. But what would another wave even mean at this point? Here to discuss, we're joined by Aaron Alday, health reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome, Aaron. Hi, thanks for having me. We're also joined by Jessica Malati-Rivera, the Epidemiology Research Fellow at Boston Children's and a Senior Advisor at the Pandemic Prevention Institute. Welcome, Jessica. Hey, Alexis. Thanks for having me. Erin, let's start with you for the local survey. What are you seeing around the Bay in our COVID data? So we're definitely seeing an uptick in cases, um, which I think had been anticipated for quite some time with, with these, you know, this more infectious variant kind of getting a foothold. Um, so they're they're climbing they're climbing at a pretty low but steady rate. So they've been picking up. My numbers show over about the last two to three weeks. That's both in the Bay Area and uh, and across California now too. Um, but we're seeing still, I mean, actually very low hospitalizations and in fact record low um, intensive care um, patients mm-hmm. numbers of intensive care patients. So so a lot of those factors are still looking really good. What are the local health officials that you're talking to saying about our current moment and what will happen if cases rise more? Well, for now, they're basically just keeping an eye on things. Um, You know, I've asked specifically, you know, are we headed into another surge? Are we headed into another situation where we might have to put some mitigation measures back in place? And so far, you know, nobody thinks that that's going to happen. Um, You know, they're obviously everybody's been sort of burned by this pandemic before. And so everybody's sort of very prepared for if things do escalate that, you know, they can pull the trigger on any number of of mitigation measures. But for now, they're really just sort of this is what they anticipated. They anticipated we would hit sort of a low point in cases and then they would start to creep up again. um, And that's what's happening. And if what they're, I think, expecting or hoping for is that we'll sort of see this kind of creeping up, maybe reach some sort of baseline, and then they'll creep back down again. And that may be sort of what our lives with COVID are for the the next few months, even, you know, this sort of like maybe gentle kind of swaying up and down. Mm-hmm. And are we seeing any differences between particular Bay Area counties or cities, or is it pretty much you know flat across the, uh, flat to up, that is to say, across the board? 
that's a, that's a little bit harder to tease out. And I, I think that this is what we're wanting to talk about later on is, is about kind of how we track this now. Um, we are seeing, like, for example, San Francisco has seen a bigger uptake um, than some other counties have. And it's, it's a little bit hard to know what's going on there. And some of this is because our numbers are small enough now that, you know, one, one day of reporting, you know, that may be a backlog of cases, it may be a single outbreak, it may be, you know, something kind of wonky happening that we don't understand, that can really throw off our measurements. And it can look like, you know, something's spiking madly when it's not. I mean, I don't think that's what's happening in San Francisco. I think there is a little bit of a faster uptick there. Um, again, it's not something that that is alarming folks at this point. Um, I've even asked San Francisco specifically, you know, are you concerned and, and is like, for example, a mask measure back, you know, on the table? And they said, no, it's not. It's sort of, it's always there in the back of their minds, but that's not something that they're, you know, ready to sort of pull out at, at you know, at any time, just given the state of things now. Um, but it is a little bit harder. That's why I tend to prefer to look at the Bay Area as a whole, because you get a little bit smoother numbers and mm -hmm. it gives you i think a better sense of what's going on but but it is it is increasingly sort of hard to tease out those those local situations i for, for my purposes i find yeah and just as an example of that maybe you could talk a little bit about what happened up in marin with a school trip yeah yeah i was thinking about that too so marin has on average about i think these days probably about 30 to 35 cases per day that they're reporting and that's been creeping up i think they were 20 to 25 a few weeks ago um, but recently they had a bunch of eighth graders, um, several classrooms, I think a, a couple hundred eighth graders that went back to Washington, D.C. for a class trip, which is an annual thing. It had been postponed for two years. So this was the first time they went. It was a big deal. And when these kids came back, all of a sudden, a bunch of them tested positive for COVID. Um, they're all fine. They've all got mild symptoms. Nobody's in the hospital. Um, but that alone last I checked, they had between 50 and 60 cases reported from just those kids returning from Washington, D.C. So you report that in the numbers and it can look like Marin is just, you know, is spiking, like that there's really something something terrible going on in the community there. And of course, that's not really what's what's happening. It's driven by different things. Yeah. Jessica Milati Rivera, uh, you know, something that you focused on a lot over the course of the pandemic is just the data quality and what we can know from the data that we have. What's the team there at the Pandemic Prevention Institute? What are they really seeing in terms of the quality, particularly of the case data? Let's start there. You know, it's a lot of the same kind of nightmares that we often focused on at the COVID tracking project. It's, it's the very unstandardized versions of reporting, the very unstandardized cadences of reporting. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, this fatigue that is absolutely expected has caused a number of jurisdictions to completely change their reporting policies. In, in some cases, they've completely stopped um, and as a result, we're just dealing with incredibly unreliable data, incredibly inconsistent and non-comparable data. Um, and something that we kind of had anticipated even back in our CTP days was the role of at-home tests and what that's going to do to the big picture of understanding case and testing data. And I think it's muddied the waters even more. It's making it very difficult to understand what these official numbers actually mean. Uh, and it almost makes you feel like you're kind of bracing for impact when it gets realized in hospitalization data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've wondered about that, too, just because we've had several people test positive around us. And I don't know that any of them have actually gone to get a confirmatory uh, mm -mm. PCR test, which then makes you wonder, like, well, 
it, it just these numbers may not be comparable to what they might have been, let's say, a year ago, right, when people probably would have gotten that confirmatory test or wouldn't have had an at-home test in the first place and would have gone straight to a, a PCR test, right? Right. And I mean, this is a bit anecdotal, but I've heard this for several months now where a number of jurisdictions, even some of the jurisdictions that have some of the best data, including New York City, don't necessarily incentivize folks or encourage folks to do the confirmatory lab-based PCR. They say, hey, if you're testing positive, then stay home, isolate, do all the things, but you're likely not going to show up in the bottom line here. And we don't need you to come in to like prove it to us that you have COVID. That's so interesting. So what about the other uh, data streams? You've got the hospitalization data, which does appear, at least in the Bay Area, to look pretty good still, right? It does. I mean, I think that it's when you read these headlines like San Francisco has the highest transmission rate in, you know, compared to other parts of California, you, I'm always, my eyes will immediately go to the hospitalization numbers and just see kind of like what that actually means here. We're a very vaccinated population. And because of that, we know the hospitals are probably less full because there are so many people who are double and triple vaccinated. Um, that's not the case in a lot of other places where the number of booster doses in a population are closer to 40 to 50% of the population of el- eligible population which is concerning because when we are dealing with a mostly Omicron um, kind of related surge or transmission cycle, it makes a big difference when it comes to people's outcomes. Yeah. You know, it also feels like the other big data gap right now is just the number of people who don't want to get tested, who get the sniffles or get something that could be, you know, consistent with a with an Omicron infection. And then are just like, you know what, I don't want the hassle. I'm just gonna not get a test. Yeah, that's a problem. And and I will say it doesn't help that there are a number of other respiratory viruses that are circulating. I know that there's a really bad, you know, cold going around in the Bay Area that a number of people in my circle have gotten. And, you know, after multiple, multiple tests are pretty confident that it wasn't COVID. But even still, um, this kind of uh, I'm, you know, I'm triple vaccinated. What, what's it going to do? It's just going to make me kind of understand that I have COVID. But w- the problem is, because Omicron has been so difficult to identify early on an infection, meaning it kind of seems to wait a few days, especially among the vaccinated and boosted to appear in an, even a rapid antigen test, uh, it, it presents an opportunity for more people to get infected mm-hmm. if people are not actually doing the proper isolation. And even if it is the reduced isolation per the CDC, it's problematic to know that there, there could be people who are positive, possibly infectious to others and walking around in the community. Yeah. You know, Jessica, you know me. I've been an optimist, uh, an optimist who has, <laughs> has had to learn the hard way to not be as optimistic. But yet again, hope springs eternal. And I feel like I want to get my hopes up that another wave is not coming. But if I look at the UK, I look at France, I already see they're on the back end of a, another wave that we, ha- we haven't really seen here. So is there an optimist case to be made we're going to skip a wave here <laughs> or is it more a matter of time? Oh, gosh, this question, you know, I spent a good amount of time talking to Dr. Catherine Wu at The Atlantic about this, and it got very philosophical, because what is a wave? You know, what is a surge? Mm -hmm. And there isn't a standardized definition of either of those terms either, especially in the context of COVID. And I have tried to lean into your optimism for over two years now, because (laughs) it gets exhausting to not be one. But, you know, I do think that it is a matter of time before we will see a much larger uptick in cases. What I'm hoping, you know, being a, you know, newbie optimist is that as that 
you know, trend probably is realized that more people will be boosted and that will make a big difference because we are dealing with, you know, mostly Omicron variants and subvariants causing this surge. I'm just hoping that the combination of people who have been previously infected, people who are boosted, the warm temperatures, hopefully keeping people outdoors more and not, you know, coming in for AC, et cetera, uh, will kind of buy us some time before the fall. Do I think that there's probably going to be a Badder one, a worse one in the <laughs> fall. Yeah, I do, to be completely honest. And I think that's just because of the global trends that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Last uh, quick thing on the data, the wastewater surveillance, which doesn't re- require people to get tested, right? It just measures the level of virus in wastewater systems also seems to indicate things are actually still okay too, right? So, I mean, that's been part of my optimist case for that it's not just people not getting tested, that actually things are at least close to a steady state, maybe ticking up a little. Maybe, maybe. Uh, It just kind of is dependent on the amount of wastewater surveillance, right? I think you were talking about this a long time ago, early in the COVID tracking project days. And I remember thinking, gosh, if we just had the financing to allow Mm. these jurisdictions to do something like this, this would be amazing. And now it seems like the hot thing to do, which is wonderful, but it's still not at a level that I would feel confident in what it's doing on a predictive level when it comes Mm. to transmission. Um, In some places, yes. And in some places you can like, you know, we saw this a lot in Texas. You saw a number of places that had just extraordinarily high levels of the virus in the wastewater. And it was just a you know, writing was on the wall, that there was an Mm -hmm. outbreak happening. Uh, If that was everywhere, we could feel more confident, but it's still just not enough. We don't have it. We're talking about COVID this morning, first here in the local, then we're going to go global shortly and what the future holds. We're joined by Jessica Malati-Rivetta, Epidemiology Research Fellow at Boston Children's and a Senior Advisor at the Pandemic Prevention Institute, as well as Aaron Alday, Health Reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about COVID. Started with the local. Now we're going to turn to the situation in China. We're joined by Aaron Alday, health reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, Jessica Malati-Rivera, the epidemiology research fellow at Boston Children's and a senior advisor at the Pandemic Prevention Institute. And we're now joined by Victor Xi, chair in China and Pacific Relations at the University of California, San Diego. Welcome to the show, Victor. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We also want to get your questions and comments. Are you concerned about the rise of new variants? 
Do you have friends or family in China or overseas that are seeing a different kind of response from their national or local governments to COVID? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Victor, let's start with you we know that there are these big lockdowns, as they are known, going on uh, in China right now. But I think people, we started to use that term in the U.S. too to describe, um, you know, relatively mild restrictions on on movement and other things here in the U.S. What does a big urban Chinese lockdown actually look like, and how does it work? Uh, so actually, there are different forms of it. Uh, Shanghai has seen both uh, what's called dynamic lockdown uh, and also total lockdown. In a dynamic lockdown, uh, the Chinese government looked at the data to see uh, who has uh, COVID as well as uh, who has been in close proximity to people who have had COVID. And then um, the places where they live, the entire building would be placed under lockdown. Uh, And then the neighborhood committee would be in charge of delivering food. Um, and also be in charge of testing people in the building repeatedly. In a lockdown, the entire city uh, would get locked down, and then the government would be entirely be in charge of uh, delivering food and medical services to people under lockdown. Uh, Shanghai uh, has seen both versions of this. So some of the in Shanghai have been under lockdown for weeks because they were first put under dynamic and then more recently uh, put under total lockdown. Yeah. Jessica Milati Rivera, we have seen the Chinese pursue this zero COVID policy quite differently than a lot of the rest of the world. What would you say has been sort of uh, stands out the most to you uh, in terms of the approach the Chinese government has taken versus even other places like, say, New Zealand that have taken quite restrictive measures? Right. I think one of the biggest distinctions between, you know, a place like China and even New Zealand or Australia who operated under zero COVID strict lockdown uh, measures is the vaccination trends. Uh, You know, when we look at what happened in the elderly population in parts of China, uh, it was quite devastating to see that the number of folks who died over the age of 60 were either partially or completely unvaccinated. Uh, And that had a lot to do with, unfortunately, really bad public health messaging when it came to the vaccine and what it could do for that population. Mm. I mean, I guess if you're stamping out the the disease by having no transmission, you kind of live in this, uh, you know, optimist bubble of it's not around here. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you're not preventing something that isn't actually a direct threat. But then when it did actually come in, uh, it swept through the most vulnerable population, a population that we have worked really hard to protect in places like New Zealand, Australia, and even here in the U.S. So it's quite devastating when you compare the raw numbers for vaccination. Victor, she talked to me a little bit about the political importance of zero COVID policy in China. Uh, Yeah, so I think the Chinese government has um, basically highlighted uh, China's successful control of COVID, especially in 2020-2021, as a key metric of uh, the legitimacy of the entire regime. Uh, So as a result, I think the top leadership uh, feels, at least for now, that it has to continue this policy uh, in order to 
maintain the image that China stands apart from the rest of the world, especially apart from the United States, in its ability to control COVID. Uh, of course, you know, the way in which China has pursued zero COVID, uh, even though it has worked pretty well up to this point, and then Shanghai, you know, uh, there, there are some issues, uh, it has produced other side effects. And, and really what we've seen in Shanghai is that many of these side effects uh, playing out. Um, so I think, but for now... But for those uh, who haven't been following closely, Victor, can you just describe some of the things that have been happening in Shanghai? Uh, so, for example, uh, in both the dynamic and the total lockdown phases, some neighborhoods, not all neighborhoods, have experienced food shortages. Um, so people were not prepared. They did not stockpile food. And the government also, at the same time, failed to deliver sufficient food uh, to residents there. So, you know, people complain online. A lot of people complain online. The other thing, uh, which I worry a little bit more about, is that uh, people with chronic conditions that... Mm-hmm. Or have nothing to do with COVID, they're not getting um, medical treatment or medication being delivered to them. Uh, and so after weeks and weeks of this, uh, some people are getting quite sick. Uh, some people, you know, according to social media accounts, some people have died uh, from their chronic conditions. So the, the side effects of COVID lockdown uh, is building up uh, as China continues to pursue this policy of lockdown in Shanghai. Yeah. And are these difficulties, the sort of uh, secondary effects of the lockdown, are those seen as kind of the national, the failure of a national policy, or are they seen more as regional implementation failures, like, you know, just that the, the local government in Shanghai did a bad job of doing the lockdown? I think for now, it is being chalked up as a, you know, local government uh, incompetence uh, and lack of preparation issue. Uh, but of course, you know, this is a national level policy. Uh, both uh, the Shanghai Party Secretary Li Qiang and also the Vice Premier in China, who's in charge of uh, COVID fighting, Sun Chunlan, uh, have said publicly that the, the policies being pursued by the Chinese government in Shanghai, um, you know, uh, is basically is an implementation of a central policy. And by central policy, they basically mean uh, the a dictate by President Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the implementation, of course, is you know wanting at this point. Yeah. Is there a reason, Victor Xi, that the Chinese vaccination campaign has proceeded so poorly? Jessica mentioned you know the messaging around uh, public health, but I mean the numbers are kind of uh, devastating. I think I, I saw ninety million sixty-five plus year olds remain unvaccinated, twenty million over eighty. And we also know that the the vaccine that they've largely received has a lower um, effectiveness than a lot of the other vaccines around the world. What's the why did that go poorly? I mean, it seems like that would have been part of the zero covid policy and part of proving the state capacity of the Chinese government. Uh, so overall in the population, I think Chinese vaccination has been very successful. You know, over 90 percent of the population uh, has been vaccinated. Uh, but of course, you know, I think the at least the efficacy of just having two shots uh, is is a bit uh, questionable. Um, and so at this point, why isn't the Chinese government first allowing for the mass import of Pfizer or Moderna from uh, the rest of the world? And why isn't the Chinese government pursuing um, sort of a third shot with maybe a different vaccine 
for the population, which seems that it would be you know more effective than what they're doing. Um, I think it comes down to a couple of things. One is that at the central level, uh, again, because China has built up this image that China can rely on itself to combat COVID and that the political system under the Chinese Communist Party can totally handle it, it doesn't want to be seen as uh, being dependent on a foreign import mm. to finally uh, put COVID under control. The other thing is that a lot of local officials are reluctant to pursue a policy of forced vaccination uh, because at the beginning of uh, when the vaccines were developed, uh, the Chinese government um, propagated the idea that uh, there are serious side effects related to the vaccines, especially the foreign vaccines. Mm. Uh, and so a lot of older people may be reluctant to get the foreign vaccines. And if local officials force him to get it and then something did happen, you know, uh, an old person did die from it or something like that, uh, they don't want to be held uh, responsible for it. So there's a little bit of a pushback at the local level also. Huh. It's just so interesting to take such intense mobility restriction measures and uh, and another, you know, dynamic or total lockdowns, um, but then not push heavily on the vaccine. It's just a very, very interesting to see such a different approach. Uh, Aaron Alday, um, starting to get uh, some questions and comments in from listeners. Aaron Alday, health reporter of the San Francisco Chronicle. One, I wonder how much you're hearing this. Daniel tweets, if no one's dying or having to go to the hospital, why does this warrant a Monday morning on forum? If mandates are being dropped, why is this a big deal. And Aaron, I was wondering if that kind of sentiment of just people being like, hey, listen, we've we've done enough and now we're done. So it's over for me or for or for this region. Um, is that something you're seeing a lot or or not? Oh, I definitely get a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. I, get, <laughs> I get a lot of that just in like my my personal email. I get a lot of it, you know, on, on Twitter and social, but also just, you know, in conversations with in my own life, you know, I have friends and family saying as much to me. And, you know, I think we're in this weird phase where everybody's exhausted and really everybody is. And I think that's a legitimate thing. And I try to be very mindful and respectful of that. This has been really tough. And it's, I think it's very natural for people to want to be moving on and put it behind them. Um, you know, I think to me, like I take a lot of solace in the fact that we're at a phase where I don't have to be looking at this every single day. I mean, I, I do just because I'm kind of in these habits and if anything, I'm trying to break <laughs> out of that. But I mean, you know, but we still need to be paying very close attention. We still need to be very kind of conscientious and thoughtful of our community, even if we're feeling okay. So, you know, I think that there are a lot of things that we can and should be doing that aren't really that difficult like if you put them in perspective they're not these things aren't hard to do necessarily that we need to do now just to be paying attention to our community you know keeping a mask with us like just sort of being respectful you know it's i think it's just sort of telling people like you can't forget about it we're not in a place now where you can and we may never be but you can learn to figure out how you can sort of pay attention to your surroundings like you do any number of things and take, mm -hmm. you know, sort of appropriate precautions. And I just feel like we're in that place of, of figuring out what that means. Yeah. You know, Jessica Malati Rivera, there are a couple of uh, comments on long COVID here. I mean, Robert writes, talk about long COVID and the current variant, please. It seems to me that should be the main focus of our efforts now. And Morgan writes, Please address how the relaxing of masking affects those who have immune deficiencies. My partner has long COVID. Even a mild case could be deadly. People are tired of masks, sure, but I'm tired of calculating whether or not I can just go into the grocery store. I'm tired of checking their blood oxygen levels every morning. I'm tired of people pretending like some people are expendable. 
Please keep masking so other people can live. Remember, even a mild case can result in long COVID, and you don't want that. Jessica, what's your wh- where do you think we are sitting now in terms of dealing with and understanding long COVID and the risk factors there? I think this is such an important question, and I empathize with uh, that person deeply because you know I have found it to be that wearing a mask personally is not a huge impairment to the quality of my life. And I would hope that that would be the case for many others, but I can't expect that to be. Um, Do I think it's annoying in a large scale? I mean, sure. In some cases, yes. But when we're dealing with a situation that has not completely resolved itself, the pandemic is not over. uh, We're seeing transmission dynamics continue to go up and down. Um, we know that there are a number of people who continue to rely on the larger population to do their part to continue to keep transmission as low as possible. And that includes people who are immunocompromised, people who are at risk of long COVID, people who are at risk of severe um, illness. And the unknowns continue when it comes to long COVID. That's the frustrating thing. Uh, we don't necessarily know exactly why some people are inclined to have a prolonged experience with symptoms. I know people who are triple vaccinated who have experienced months and months of illness because of COVID. And that I don't say that to frighten people, but I say that it is a long list of unknowns. And because of that, it would, you know, behoove the whole community to just be more patient. And I hate to even use that word because Mm. two years seems like an extremely, (laughs) extremely long time to exercise patience, but we're just, we're just not there yet. Right. And I think that when it comes to even the CDC right now, extending mask mandates on transportation for like three more weeks, they're just buying themselves more time because there's still more unknowns about BA2 and the subvariants. And they're trying to understand what can we get ahead of on the information, on the data to say, okay, now we can with much more confidence say it is safer for more, more people to be unmasked in public places. But I, you know, personally, based on the data, based on what I know about masks and their efficiency, I just don't think that it's the time to be to be unmasking because long COVID is a huge, huge condition. Yeah. We're talking about the current state of COVID and what the future may hold for the Bay Area and around the world. With Jessica Milati Rivera, an epidemiology research fellow at Boston Children's and a senior advisor at the Pandemic Prevention Institute. Aaron Alday, health reporter here at the San Francisco Chronicle. And Victor Shi, chair in China and Pacific Relations at the University of California, San Diego. We would love to hear from you. Are you concerned about new variants and how they have changed over time. Do you yourself have just questions about the current state of the pandemic? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, or emails forum at kqed.org. Let's bring in Judy from San Jose. Welcome, Judy. Hi, thank you very much for this program. Uh, I just since you brought up long COVID, I would also like to point out that that's not the only issue. We have all these additional studies that have come out in terms of uh, shrinkage of brains, um, cardiac issues, uh, propensity to diabetes, uh, even the longevity of the virus in eyes over a period of time. Uh, but the thing I actually called about was um, the thing that concerns me is is we already know that the um, antigen tests already have a, you know, a, I would call it uncomfortably high false negative combined with the other issues that your your uh, uh, mm-hmm. guests have brought up about, you know, issues about, you know, not testing positive for a while and then people just not testing at all is the fact that is whether the antigen tests 
are actually picking up, uh, you know, some of these variants at all, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, we've had some subjectivity, if you will, about different tests being ver- having different levels of sensitivity over time. And I'm wondering if, say, mm. when somebody talks about this uh, version of this weird version of cold, that that isn't some kind of undetected version of Omicron. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, Jessica, do you want to uh, take that one on? Yeah, definitely. I I think it's a valid point. Uh, To be very sure, though, antigen tests are still working to detect SARS-CoV-2, Omicron, and the subvariants. We've not seen that they are incapable of doing so. The problem is a lot of times people are testing too early, uh, and they may not be testing consistently enough to the point in which they would have a viral load that is detectable by a rapid antigen test. Uh, A lot of times people are relying on solely antigen tests because they're just not going in for lab-based PCR. There's fewer lab-based PCRs that are available now because the demand is low for that. So, you know, in in cases that I know personally, um, it's taken within the reasonable amount of time, like the, within the expected amount of time up to days five or six to to test positive on antigen, which is not out of the norm, but it may be too many tests for somebody to kind of continue testing to get that positive, if that makes yeah. sense. But they are still working to do that. So if you, let's say you got two tests and you did something high risk, you went to Coachella this weekend, what would you say? What are the best days to test then? <laughs> I would definitely not test before day five after high risk. Got it. Interesting. So that is going to be something that we end up talking about probably for all of time. It's amazing, been amazing to uh, try and get the message across that you've got to wait. You can't just like come home and have like day one test and have that be all, all there is to, to say. We're talking about the current state of COVID, what the future may hold for the Bay Area and around the world with Jessica Milati Rivera, Senior Advisor at the Pandemic Prevention Institute, Aaron Alday, Health Reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, and Victor Shi, Chair in China and Pacific Relations at UCSD. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the current state of COVID and what the future may hold for the Bay Area, China, and around the world. Victor Shi wanted to ask you a couple more questions about what has been happening in China. And the first is, how firm do you think the Chinese data is? And we've talked a lot about data quality issues in the United States. Um, are there similar or different issues uh, in, in China? 
Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, so in Shanghai, there have been hundreds of thousands of uh, both symptomatic and asymptomatic cases, but no deaths. <laughs> so uh, I, I do find that a little bit questionable. I, th I think statistically, you know, even with uh, even though Omicron uh, and the variants supposedly have lighter symptoms, uh, when the people who are infected with COVID uh, tend to be older and people with uh, pre-existing conditions, uh, it's kind of hard to believe that there are no deaths. Uh, but nonetheless, that is the official story. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they're sticking with it. So so who knows, right? Um, but uh, I think definitely there are deaths, again, related to the side effects of the lockdown. And the Chinese government has acknowledged that uh, people committing suicide because they're starving. Uh, there are even some accounts of that happening. Uh, and then people are dying of pre-existing chronic conditions because they're not getting the treatment and medication that they need. Mm-hmm. Uh, listener Daniela writes, can you compare China's COVID policy with the COVID protocols in Taiwan? Uh, yeah, so I'm not an expert uh, in what happened in Taiwan. Uh, my understanding, though, is that uh, in Taiwan, it is an individual level lockdown. So people, uh, either because they're traveling from overseas or because uh, they have family members who have who are infected or they've come into close proximity to people who are infected, uh, then the government would uh, let them know via the cell phone that mm -hmm. they have to stay at home for the next three weeks uh, or whatever. That puts a lot less pressure um, at the community level because not everybody is locked down. Um, the government doesn't need to deliver food to, you know, in the case of Shanghai, 23 million people. You know, so, so you can imagine that's actually a very huge logistical challenge. Whereas in Taiwan, I think people, uh, the sort of thousands of people who have to place themselves under lockdown, mm -hmm. they can still receive food. They can still receive uh, medication from private services. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, Jessica Milati-Rivera, just sticking with China for a minute here, there was this pretty incredible push in the early days of the outbreak for centralized quarantine in China, which they're still executing. So basically, you test positive, you have to go to a centralized facility that never caught on really in the West, right? We tried to call it like supportive quarantine and some things like that. What's the current in the epidemiological world? What's the current thinking about centralized quarantine now and its, its use in, in places? You know, centralized quarantine requires a lot of financial infrastructure that we just don't have in our public health system here in the West, especially in the United States. I mean, I think a lot of the reasons why we have uh, experienced such horrible outcomes from this pandemic in the U.S. is after years and years of defunding and devaluing public health. Uh, that is everything from ways to support modernization of data to creating systems that can support people financially uh, to deal with things like proper isolation, quarantine, childcare loss of business, a place to safely quarantine and isolate. Um, and I think that that is probably one of the biggest takeaways from this pandemic for the U.S. and for how we spend our money to make sure that we have systems in place to allow for better ways to care for people. I mean, our hospitals alone are not even sufficient for the amount of people that need to receive critical care. Uh, so that is another sign of us just not having the kind of, you know, everything from stockpiles to beds to care for our people. Yeah. You know, Aaron Alday, health reporter, San Francisco Chronicle, I wanted to ask you about some of the longer term 
plans that you may be hearing about from uh, healthcare officials. You know, we've sort of moved in this pandemic really, you know, maybe not day to day, but kind of day to day, week to week. Are you hearing from, you know, Alameda County or Santa Clara that they're trying to make longer term plans and, and what those might be? Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely true. Although I think at this point, it's it's, you know, moving from from sort of day to day to week to week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's sort mm-hmm. of the, the long term planning. Um, and, you know, and I will say they've been they've been thinking long term the whole the whole time. Right. Like we've always had sort of, you know, modelers forecasting out and whatnot. But those it's just been it's it's been really hard to plan beyond a few weeks generally throughout this pandemic. Again, you know, as we talked about, this thing is is notorious now for just being so filled with uncertainty and the hardest thing to plan for is, you know, whatever new variant comes along. But the kind of the impression that I've gotten is with each surge that we've had, and and it's notable to me that each surge in the Bay Area has been caused by a different variant, right? Mm-hmm. So these things are, are pretty closely connected. And for example, with Omicron, I think people were pleased, if you can be pleased by what happened with Omicron, that, you know, this variant was identified so quickly in another country that it was identified very quickly in the United States and that we understood very quickly within, you know, hmm. weeks what what we were going to be dealing with, like what how that was going to impact, you know, our communities and what they needed to do to respond to it. And as such, they did keep, you know, they anticipated that we would get a huge number of cases and that that would result in more hospitalizations and deaths than we would like but that it wouldn't kind of overwhelm our system and it and it played out that way. And so I think there's some comfort in that and feeling like we have sort of, you know, put in place the, the tools we need, the surveillance and, and the practices and the responses that we sort of know what we're doing when when these things happen. Um, you know, I'm, you can probably hear the hesitancy in my voice. I just, you know, I think we have been, we, we kind of never know what's coming. Um, and you just you just don't know like what the fall and what the what the winter will bring, um, but it feels like that's the sort of planning that they're thinking about. Is we now we've, we've tried out all these tools, we've tried out sort of the pacing of them, we've tried out you know when you know how we monitor these things and how we respond to what we're finding in the surveillance, and that's all kind of coming together. So I think that that's that's sort of they're feeling like that's the planning that they're doing, and and it's both kind of in the short term but in the longer term too. Um, I don't know if that kind of answers your question, but that's, yeah, yeah, that's what they're thinking about now. Yeah, Jessica, I mean, it does seem that uh, the biggest part of almost any plan going forward does seem to have to account for what is faster than at least people originally expected evolution of of this virus. I mean, I think, you know, back in the early days, people were like, well, if it evolved as fast as the flu, that'd be pretty fast. But it's actually turned out to be substantially faster, right? It did. And this actually came up in the latest VRB PAC meeting. Uh, Trevor Bedford actually spoke on this topic of why does it seem to have this, you know, advantage in mutation? Uh, he mentioned, you know, very specific details about this pro- the, a certain pr- uh, mutation on the spike protein, mm-hmm. um, making it more optimal for it kind of evolving some more. But it does also show a behavioral dynamic that we have to consider too, in that when you don't have enough people vaccinated or boosted in that case, um, because of Omicron, uh, you see that the virus has more opportunities to propagate itself and, and mutate and change. And that is a really terrible situation to be in when you're in the middle of a pandemic trying to slow it down. Uh, you're asking people to do something to help that process. Um, and when we, when people don't, it can kind of prolong the whole situation. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it's amazing to think how much the actual sort of features of this virus have changed over time to get just so much more uh, infectious. I mean, and it seems, uh, tell me if this is right, Jessica, it seems like it has happened more quickly as time has gone on, right? Like the the sort of ancestral version of the virus took a while to evolve to these, these later things. And now it seems like the subvariants are coming out very, very quickly. I think we're getting better at identifying them. Um, mm. I think also just the fact that there are so many people and in various populations with very different public health mitigation efforts, mm. um, it creates just a multitude of dynamics for the virus to kind of continue to live, uh, continue to, you know, evolve. And I, I think we have to be careful too, to not presume that it's getting stronger. You know, viruses don't always evolve in a very linear fashion. I think Omicron and even Delta were kind of indications of it can kind of be a little bit rogue. Um, but we would hope that as more and more people become vaccinated, that the virus is outsmarted to a degree and that we can create these, you know, the actual definition of herd immunity, which is a population that is not as susceptible to having very disruptive outbreaks because people are immune. Yeah. Let's get to a couple more callers. Blair in San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. And Jessica, thank you for all the work you've done. I've followed you on Instagram and it's been amazing. Mm -hmm. My question is, um, as a as a mother of a child who's three and a half and not yet eligible for vaccines and what you guys were discussing earlier about not really knowing how to um, evaluate the case counts with oh, so many people doing at home testing. How as a parent am I supposed to navigate like at what metric is it not safe to like take her to the grocery store, even if we're both wearing like high quality masks? It's just been hard to navigate to do a risk benefit analysis with um, kind of where we're at right now? It's a really good question. Go ahead, Jessica. Thanks so much for your kind words. And I'm, I'm right there with you. I have a three and a half year old who's not yet eligible for vaccination. I also have a baby on the way. So I'm very much still doing that kind of weird partial math of how to measure risk. Um, I think at this point, it's not a single factor that I'm looking at. It's not a single, um, you know, trend in the data. I'm obviously looking at hospitalization just to kind of see like how bad things are in my jurisdiction here in San Francisco. It's really not that bad, but I would say my, my, I'm grateful that my three and a half year old is very adapted and he's, he's, you know, really kind of taken to masks. He understands the benefits of them. He's not bothered by wearing them for long periods of time. So if we are going to do something that is high risk, something indoors in mixed uh, settings, uh, he just, we just kind of go with it. We just wear masks. Uh, We wear masks probably more than a lot of people around us do because because we have, you know, myself pregnant and he is not vaccinated to consider. So our risk tolerance has relatively been low uh, throughout the pandemic. I will say we have to, uh, assumed more risk for things that we've needed to do for our family's sake, for our mental health. We have gone on a few flights. I think that the fact that there's going to be mask rules through May 3rd buys us a little bit more time for that. But, um, you know, it there isn't a single thing. I, I hate that answer because it's not very solid, but it kind of just depends. Um, we probably do a lot more things outdoors, though, than indoors as a general rule. Yeah. Thanks so much for that uh, question, Blair. Uh, but she wanted to get to uh, same same question on long term planning, basically, just because it's such a, it's so interesting to have a big technocratic country that has taken such a different approach from from the U.S. Uh, and has had, you know, in some ways greater success, uh, at least in preventing death that we know about. 
Um, what are you hearing in terms of the the actual timeline for the Chinese government in terms of if they're going to maintain this policy really for all time, I suppose? Uh, so as you know, many listeners uh, know, uh, China is going to have a leadership transition later this year. There's going to be a party congress. Uh, of course, the, the top person, Xi Jinping, is uh, widely expected to stay, to remain the leader of China. But um, the lower-level officials, including the person, uh, Sun Chunlan, who has been uh, in charge of fighting COVID for the past two years, uh, she is expected to retire uh, the party secretary of Shanghai, as well as the party secretary of you know many of China's cities, are expected to get new positions. Um, so there is going to be a bit of a reshuffling. Uh, the question to me is that I, I think Sun Chunlan, uh, despite you know sort of things that are happening in Shanghai now, uh, has basically done a very good job in controlling COVID in a, in many Chinese cities. So remember, Shanghai is just the latest sort of large-scale outbreak uh, since mm-hmm. 2020. China has had a number of them, um, you know, more recently in Xi'an, uh, which, which, by the way, the Chinese approach uh, was successful in Xi'an uh, in stopping the spread of COVID, uh, although Xi'an now, some cases are coming back in Xi'an. So, you know, whether the Chinese government can uh, go through this transition uh, in handing over the responsibility, I think it is kind of an open question. I think... Uh, if the Chinese government wanted a smoother process, then the new people who are in charge of uh, different pieces of uh, controlling COVID should begin to shadow, you know, to uh, walk mm-hmm. alongside of Sun Chunlan and other officials to learn what they're doing on the job. Because I think it is a very complex uh, logistical and public health uh, process uh, and, you know, has a very high kind of burden for uh, the usage and deployment of public resources. Um, you know, as someone uh, mentioned already. Well, and it's amazing to me, too, because you might have to keep doing it for some more years. I mean, it's not like that's something that you could, you know, just pull it together for a few more weeks. I mean, there are likely to be outbreaks for, for who knows how long, right? I mean, that's the thing that strikes me as a difficult. There's there's not really an answer for kind of an end game if you're really going zero COVID, right? Yeah, yeah. So there, there's a lot of... Um debates and discussion among the experts and uh, even, you know, so I'm on WeChat uh, with basically just academics and economists. So the, the elite, the intellectual elite in China have been 100% behind the government's approach in 2020 and much of 2021. Uh, but you definitely are seeing some serious debates uh, among the intellectual elites on the merits of continuing zero COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, you know, after the party Congress, who knows, maybe uh, the sort of the coexistence side of the mm-hmm. debate of living with the virus is going to begin to win out. Uh, you also have new leadership coming uh, in. But the continually, the, the argument of the zero COVID side, um, they bring to bear this uh, statistics that, you know, China is a country with 1.3 a plus billion population. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even if, you know, 0.01% of the population were to get very sick or die from COVID, you're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people mm-hmm. dying within a very short span of time. And that remains to be very, uh, a very worrisome outcome for the regime. Yeah. 
One last question for you, Jessica Milati Rivera. It's going to have to be quick. Uh, I've been trying to answer the following question, Tina writes. Is my 77-year-old obese diabetic husband who's had three full and one booster Moderna vaccine at greater risk of dying from COVID than the flu? I cannot find data on death rates by age and vaccination status for COVID. I understand the need to protect others, but he has greatly confined our lives because of his fear of death from COVID. And I'm doubtful that his risk of this is greater than from the flu. Um, could you give people some sense of how, you know, for someone who's had uh, three full and one booster Moderna vaccines, uh, what kind of risk status is for them given those uh, pre-existing conditions? It's it's not a simple answer. I'll try to keep it brief, but there is to compare flu and COVID one-to-one is not really uh, that comparable. They're two different viruses. They have different um, manifestations in the body, especially the long COVID factor here, but a person who's quadruple vaccinated is quite protected. And so I feel pretty confident that a person, even in those high risk categories with preexisting conditions and uh, older age is at a lower risk of dying from COVID-19 than somebody who was not. And so, you know, I have a, a parent who is over 70 years old as well. They're quadruple vaccinated. I feel confident that it is unlikely that they will die if they get infected. It's not a you know, perfect guarantee, but it is a lower risk. Yeah. We had a couple of other uh, questions, too, about that, just the fourth booster shot and, you know, when people should should take it. I mean, is it just advise just following the government recommendation there? Is that what you're thinking, Jessica? Yeah. I mean, I think that especially if you are in those categories that they have identified as higher risk uh, to follow the schedule that has been recommended by the CDC and FDA to get an additional booster dose if you're eligible. Cool. We've been talking about the current state of COVID globally and locally with Jessica Milati Rivera, Epidemiology Research Fellow at Boston Children's and a Senior Advisor at the Pandemic Prevention Institute. Thanks, as always, Jessica. Thanks for having me. Aaron Alday, health reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks for laying the local scene for us, Aaron. Thanks for having me. And Victor Shi, Chair in China and Pacific Relations at the University of California, San Diego. Thanks for coming back on, Victor. Thank you. Uh, great to be here. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? 
or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.